Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glesser and in this episode we're going to be looking into the latest in what's been happening with the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico. In December 2020, the cables snapped and the telescope collapsed. We'll hear from three scientists who know and love the telescope. Jill Tata and Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute and Professor Abel Mendez of the University of Puerto Rico in Arecibo. The Arecibo Telescope is an icon of radio astronomy and one of those structures which has transcended its scientific purpose and finds itself with a relevance and an impact in the wider public sphere. It famously appeared, of course, in the film GoldenEye and In Contact, the film based on the novel by the astronomer Carl Sagan. In fact, Ellie Arroway, the radio astronomer In Contact, is partly based on Jill Tata, who we'll hear from later in the episode. The Arecibo telescope's collapse has sent shockwaves through the astronomy community and particularly through the radio astronomy community. Seth Shostak is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. The Arecibo radio telescope, which is indeed located actually not downtown Arecibo, which is a small city on the uh, northwest coast of Puerto Rico, uh, is located another roughly 20 miles inland. But in any case, this was uh, a project originally fostered by the U.S. Army that was interested in studying the Earth's ionosphere, this part of the atmosphere that has lots of charged particles. Uh, the ionosphere, you may figure, doesn't you know, play a big role in your life, but actually in some ways it does because it facilitates long-distance radio communication. Anybody who drives around the countryside at night turning their automobile radio will notice that you know the AM stations, I, I think they're called middle wavelengths in, in Europe, I'm not quite sure, but anyhow, the low-frequency AM radio, you can pick up stations that are very, very far away at night. And the reason that happens is not because they turn up the power switch at night, but only that, you know, at night the ionosphere changes its characteristics and it acts as a big mirror for low frequency radio waves at night. And so, you know, the the radio waves from the continent or wherever else will bounce off that ionosphere. Anyhow, the uh, Army was interested in this for the obvious reason that they depend on long distance communication. So they were going to build a big transmitter with a big, you know, uh, a reflector, a, a, a big, if you will, radio lens, although it's really a radio mirror, put it down in Puerto Rico and uh, bounce uh, signals, radar signals off the ionosphere and study them. But as soon as they started doing this, the people at Cornell University, where a lot of the design was being carried out, realized that, well, by gosh, if you're going to build that big, you know, a, a radio mirror, we could also use it for astronomy. And so it has, ever since it was completed in the early 1960s, been used for both astronomy and for radar. Now, it's a big thing. It's a 1,000 feet across. Uh, I, I reckon once it could hold 2 billion scoops of ice cream, which, of course, wouldn't be so good in Puerto Rico because it's always kind of warm and <laughs> would all melt. But, you know, so, so it's been used for astronomy, but they also still study the ionosphere. They use the big transmitter. We've sent a message into space as kind of a stunt back in 1974, I believe it was. And, and and not only that, you know, it was used to find the first extras, uh, extrasolar planet. 
And uh, I used it to study galaxies in the 1970s. It's used to study pulsars. It has a long history of uh, service to astronomy and also SETI. Unfortunately, beginning in August, it began to fall apart. And now it is truly sort of imploded. So it looks like it's going to be taken apart and trucked away. It, you know, astronomy isn't about going out and looking at things you already know about. Uh, that's generally not what you do. I mean, it's not much point in that. It's like going out every night with your backyard telescope and looking at the moon. Yep, still there, Bob. Well, yeah, okay, but, you know, that doesn't tell you very much. The thing about Arecibo was that it found new things, and it was used for all a wide range of stuff. I, I, and I used to use it for studying galaxies, mostly small galaxies, but which is very good because it's so so big. It's very, very sensitive, and, you know, you find very weak emission, natural emission. That's the stuff from galaxies, but also pulsars. A lot of pulsar work there. Uh, and by studying pulsars in 1993, I think it was, a guy by the name of Alex Wolshan, a Polish astronomer, found the first planet around another star. It was around a dead star, a pulsar. But, you know, people tend to forget that, that that was done at Arecibo. And uh, so pulsars, galaxies, uh, and and also asteroids, by the way, because of that radar capability, you could bounce radar waves off you know, asteroids, and then by analyzing what gets bounced back, you can actually make models of what these things look like. In fact, there's a guy at the SETI Institute, Michael Bush, who if you look at his desk, it's got all these little 3D printed models of asteroids. This is what they actually look like, even though, you know, if you looked at them through a telescope, you wouldn't see any of that. But, you know, so, you know, that's, that's also valuable if you want to avoid having, you know, one of the major metropoli of the UK wiped out by an asteroid. I mean, if one came down and you know, took out Swindon, that would be a real loss. So, you know, uh, to avoid that, you you want to map these things out and learn more about what they're like and how, how, how big a hole they'll make. But in terms of Arecibo, I, I guess the point is to say, what are we missing out? Well, you don't, you don't know what you're missing out. You know, it's like saying, okay. if Leeuwenhoek hadn't built the microscope, what would we miss out on? He, he wouldn't have known. More from Seth Shostak later in the podcast. And as Seth said... The Arecibo has been used by astronomers for science which was not expected or predicted when it was first set up. Professor Abel Mendez is from the University of Puerto Rico in Arecibo. I am a planetary astrobiologist, a physicist by training. I also direct our laboratory of planetary habitability lab. This uh, laboratory tries to understand the potential for life everywhere. We do theory, we use uh, Earth as an example. So when we established this laboratory, I have been through these last 10 years working on different models applied to different things from terrestrial solar system and exoplanets. And because I have the observatory nearby, so I work at the university, which is in the same town, 30 minutes away from the observatory. So, and I have been interacted a lot through many years with the observatory because of friends astronomers. I l love more to do theory, so I don't consider myself an observer. And I was not interested to be an observer <laughs> or experimentalist. But still, I wanted to use the observatory because it was it's nearby. And I was thinking how to connect my astrobiology what I love to do, and these planetary models and that with, uh, with Arecibo. And I had no connection at all. And probably the only connection is SETI, but for me, there was no connection at all. And it was until 2017 
that uh, talking with Alex Abolskan, the, uh, he's the guy that discovered the first planet in 1992 from Arecibo, and he mentioned something about Red Dwarf Stars, that uh, we can detect their flares from the Red Dwarf Star. And uh, yes, in the radio spectrum, I know they're in the visible UV. UV. Yes, in the radio spectrum. And we have done something similar with Arecibo. And I say, wow, red dwarf star holes, most of these potentially habitable planets. Those flares erode their atmosphere. So if you see a, a frailing star, that's not good. Even if the planet is in the habitable zone, that probably is, it, it was cooked long, long ago. There's a, there's a problem. I can work on that, looking those red dwarf stars. And then I started uh, doing observations and uh, with, with the support of the staff there. Uh, we pick from potentially habitable planets what targets are in the field of view of Arecibo. There were not that many, about just four. And we started by looking at the stars to determine how their flaring activity might affect the planet, measure the magnetic field of the stars, so you get an idea of the space environment that those planets are. So that's, that's the connection with astrobiology. So I've been doing that very active since the last uh, three to four years, working with Arecibo. But it's not there anymore. It's not there anymore, but uh, still working with the Arecibo data, and you will see papers coming in probably in the far future, saying they're from the Arecibo Observatory, because the data uh, has been always archived there from the from the 60s, even the 60s. They even have the original tapes of the data. It's available physically there for anyone if you want to dig them. But now from 2000 or so, they have it in hard disk. So it's a uh, very easy accessible online, and we have more data than time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so we are still uh, with my students. We are still and will be for some time, yeah. even our own data, just to see it uh, through time. Last time I was physically at the observatory was in February, but. Yeah, and then the pandemic started, but the observatory, you can use it remotely. That's a normal thing. So the Arcibo was working with the pandemic like nothing happened. Anyway, because most of the people do observations remotely. So I was using until the last week of the event, of the first cable failure in August. That's great to hear that the data from Arecibo means it's going to have a legacy. And, and I suppose that that legacy begins straight away. But can you take us back to that moment? What was that like for you as an astronomer working at the observatory when you heard of the collapse? So I remember doing my last observation on Thursday. And then by Monday, there was a first cable failure. It's a, it was an auxiliary cable. There are three towers holding the platform with the Gregorian dome. And those, uh, each uh, towers hold that platform with six cables. Four main cables originally built in the 60s for, to hold the platform and two auxiliary cables that were put there in the 90s because of the additional weight of the Gregorian dome. Because there was only two antennas before and then including now that big ball. It certainly is a big ball. And the Gregorian Dome was an addition, as Abel says, in the mid to late 90s to the Arecibo Observatory and allowed for a more accurate high-frequency observations, up to 10,000 megahertz. And inside this dome, there are two radio reflectors 
that more finely focus the radio signals onto the detectors of the dish. When you see it in photographs, it can seem like it's quite small just because of the huge size of the Arecibo, but it's actually 85 feet in diameter. Back to Abel Mendez. By that uh, Monday, uh, the first LCD cable just snapped. I, at that moment when I heard that, I was not that worried. I had to tell my students we were planning to do observations through the late August and so on that semester. Uh, well, we won't be doing it. We won't be able to do the observations. But I thought that, well, it was an auxiliary cable and maybe something happened there. Maybe it's related to Hurricane Maria. And um, I was not that worried. It would take some time. Yeah, probably we will lose uh, all the semester, but it will fix it. And they were uh, planning to, and, and they ordered the cable. And uh, um, by November, the week that before, they were uh, uh, they were planning to to install the cable. The cable arrived, and the same week that they were supposed to start the cable then one of the main cables broke okay this is the, no 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 this is not okay this is for real something something bad is is moving in the bad direction and um that cable broke caused a lot of damage and now that we were in stop mode because uh, now it's very dangerous to work and the scientific community the Arecibo users got together through emails, contacts, and then we got into a Zoom meetings every every week, maybe two or three times, just about the future of the observatory, what can be done, and uh, what happened. And, uh, and the issue was that NSF was very cautious and uh, didn't want for uh, anybody to get nearby to try to repair. To repair. Even that the Arecibo administration was willing because there are a lot of engineers, long-time engineers that live in Arecibo there, that have been dedicated their life working with the observatory. And um, they were eager to try to stabilize the, the platform. And one, one of the things was release weight. There were uh, lead bricks of counterweight in the platform. There was water. And they were able to go over there just to, as a starting process, just to release some weight. But even that was not allowed. <laughs> even that wasn't allowed because it was too risky. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, uh, it was, uh, NSF was very cautious and it said, no, 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 no. Okay. It, uh, so they were willing to do that and then try to, try to fix it. But it would take some time to order a new cable maybe install the auxiliary cable back or something like that so to, to make more stable while now wait for a, a, a new cable. So they were, uh, NSF were very cautious and uh, and tried to defend NSF here because we, <laughs> we were really mad <laughs> that we were hold to that. Yeah. Yeah. So trying to defend NSF, is this is like uh, you have your home and then something bad happens, some damage, and uh, it's very risky to repair. And people are willing. I and mean, okay, if you pay me, I pay, I'll take the risk and no problem. You won't be uh, uh, any issues for you because I want to take the risk. But you say, okay, I have people that are willing to take the risk, not responsible for me. But 
I don't want anyway in my home. Somebody dying and have that in my mind <laughs> that somebody dying because I accepted even that person. So, okay, so probably that was the mentality of NSA. They don't want in, their, in any other side to something that happened. But people, scientists and engineers were mad about that. that we should try to, to do it anyway. And then NSF said, okay, we want to decommission the observatory. What? Okay, it's not trying to save it. Now they commissioned the observatory. So we were trying to push that, to, to, to revert that decision, to let's try to, the, uh, while they assess the, the observatory for the commission and demolition, maybe there those people will say, okay, we can do this and you have to try to push it the other way. So we were discussing that through weekly meetings, but then in December 1st, it collapsed. How does that feel at that moment? Well, I remember by 8 a.m. I received uh, a Twitter message. So one of colleagues said the, the observatory collapsed. I didn't ask anything more. I We knew that that was some possibility. He said that to me. I have no more questions. <laughs> I know what happened. So it was, it was a moment... Of disbelief, I just, I just was uh, in shock, in shock. Then about one minute later after that, I received a call from press, local press here. I have a friend in the media and, uh, and she's, uh, she's a meteorologist and uh, Adam Monson. She's very well known here. And uh, I have been in her uh, program and their sections in the TV show, talking about planets Arecibo before many times. So uh, the TV station, the producers called me, just, uh, we just heard the news. So th that was 8 a.m. It happens by 7.55 a.m. So it was just five minutes after everything happened. They, we are, uh, they were having a, a, a live program at that time, those, those morning shows, and she was there and they wanted me to go with her or live on air just to talk about it. For the first time, I say no <laughs> to her. Yes, I couldn't make it. No, it was, uh, I was in shock. I, I couldn't hold my, myself. I, I knew I couldn't hold myself talking about that. So I said, uh, no, sorry for that. Then I got a bunch of more requests from local media, which I was saying, no, I, at least if, if they were only by phone, so a few questions, yes, I, I answered a few things, but I was, uh, uh, I was hiding myself. And then one hour later, then international media. So I got a lot of emails and calls, international media asking, and it, it was through email. I just answered something quickly and that was it. And uh, by noon, they were inviting me to the site to go in the afternoon for a, a, a for with, with reporters there. And I said, no, <laughs> and I said, no, I couldn't make it there. No, I don't want it. Uh, it, it, was, it was very hard for me. It was very, very hard. And I have uh, additional requests to go over there and I say, no, sorry for that. 
So by late December, I received a call from the staff of the observatory just saying me, okay, we are doing some special uh, uh, videos, some and some clips, and uh, we want you to be there and have an interview. This is uh, something from us only. It's not uh, for, it's a project of the observatory. So we want to early January to get you in a date for filming. And I thought, well, that was important for them. And I, okay, that was important. Okay, so I say yes. So I went to the observatory in early January physically. And uh, the problem here is uh, even after I watched the, the, the videos, it was, I was not, it was not a huge impact. Like watching some CGI or something like that. But I knew that going physically there, it will become real. <laughs> so, so far I've seen pictures and videos. In my mind, I was trying to, okay, that's like something real. But to be there and see everything, then it, I, I had a shock there. Mm. Because, okay, like, oh, well, that made, me, that made the experience real for me. Yeah. So, so it was, it was hard. I think we can all feel what this means to Abel and no doubt other astronomers who've known and loved Arecibo. But before the collapse, I had the opportunity to talk with Jill Tarter about the film Contact. And her answer to one question told me just what Arecibo and specifically that Gregorian dome meant to her. In the film, Jodie Foster plays Ellie Arroway, the character partly based on Jill Tarter herself. It was wonderful. I got to talk with Jodie Foster about the character and the role. And before they started filming, we'd have quite long phone conversations and it would be not about um, the fine points of radio astronomy and observing or any kind of astrophysical discussions. Although Carl did routinely have those with the cast. Okay. Jody wanted to know things like, do astronomers have egos? Hmm, I said, nah, nah, well, yeah, we're all fine except the infrared astronomers. <laughs> but it was all about, for her, it was all about not teaching anyone astronomy, but trying to portray um, the main character as being some, uh, a human with incredible passions and stubbornness and curiosity and trying to make the role into something that would appeal to young people and to motivate them, inspire them to go into science. And I think it did that very well. I thought that Jodie Foster did a really good job. She's She's quite brilliant. She's a very smart lady and actually turns out to be quite kind. I would get these handwritten thank you notes from her while she was sitting in her trailer in Socorro waiting for the rains to stop as they were filming. I also enjoyed the fact that she spent a lot of time standing on a box because Matthew McConaughey is pretty tall. <laughs> so when they needed the close-up and they needed the two heads on the same level, she'd be on a box. And when I... When I was in Puerto Rico, when they were filming at the um, Arecibo Observatory, 
had a great opportunity to take Jody up into the Gregorian Dome at that radio telescope. And inside, I pointed out to her that it was it was like the Whispering Dome in, uh, is it St. Paul's Cathedral oh, in yeah. London? Mm-hmm. Right. For an astronomer, this is our cathedral. Mm-hmm. Um, we get to view the universe from here, and um, it is an awesome and powerful place. You can hear the rest of that interview in the November 2019 episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, Physics and Hollywood. But when I was talking to Professor Abel Mendez, I wondered what the collapse means for the community of Arecibo, the location, and Puerto Rico more widely, not just in terms of the science and the astronomers. For Puerto Ricans, the Arecibo Observatory is, is an icon. It's an icon and an inspiration is only for science, as a, uh, for people doing uh, uh, science in astronomy, also for engineering from all, all disciplines. It's like uh, it just gives you some kind of empowerment. Trying to imagine my life without the Receiver Observatory, probably we felt more isolated growing up with uh, isolated, I mean, from the astronomy. So there's no role models, uh, no people related to, to what I like. So that, uh, that for me, uh, uh, was an empowerment and, and that... Uh, that I have the, that support mm. everywhere. Even that my field was, I was more interested in astrobiology. I was more interested in planets. So I was not that interested in radio astronomy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but the astronomy friends were there. So, so I think the Recibo is like a role model. And I, 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 I like to joke about that because then you feel uh, like you have this, this power with a Recibo. You uh, uh, you don't feel less. You feel equal. Maybe you feel even uh, better than others. It's like in the movie Avengers that I think in one of the scenes, it was Iron Man. He said to the enemy, we got the Hulk. So here for, for astronomy, we got the receiver. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> so you feel a power and a, a, a that that you feel safe, that you feel comfortable, that you have a, a, a place. So, 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 so people there serve me for role models, but I think the observatory itself, the structure and everything, was a role model that uh, you can do uh, big science, big astronomy, even in a small island. That is, there's no cause that astronomy as in scientific culture, and you see that a lot everywhere. <laughs> so, so even that you have that power there. <laughs> Does that mean you have to replace it then? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, so before the collapse, conversations were always about how to save the observatory, and then after the collapse, replace it, replace it. And the reason for that is still the same reasons for why it was built in Puerto Rico in the 1960s. So it was location. They wanted to be close to the equator for two reasons. One is because it has a radar and you can see the planets. It's closer to the uh, orbital plane of the planets projected from the equator. So 
but also you have a, a wider field of view as if you go close to the equator. It's like uh, you try to move your head if you are looking up only and just move your head around in a, in, a, in a chair, then you see the same thing. But if you're looking to the side, to the front, and you're moving the chair, you will be scanning. You will be using Earth as a scanning. So the closer you get to the equator, the larger field of view. So you have that. And you have a natural depression there. So it will be easier to, 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 to construct uh, the observatory. So those are the, and uh, they want to study the ionosphere, which uh, also the, uh, the atmosphere and the ionosphere, which denser in the, in the equatorial regions. So another reason. And probably a few more minor, and U.S. territory. So it was, so lowest than that, you cannot go too close to the equator if you are looking for a U.S. territory. And, uh, and, and then and he had the, the, the location. So you have those reasons still today, but you have one more now. You have the infrastructure already there. You have the staff of the scientists there. You don't have to build that from scratch as it, as it was done before. Every, all buildings, even all instruments that are all operation, in operation right now that uh, people never heard of because the telescope opaque everything else. <laughs> so there are other instruments there. There was some model dish, a 12 meter uh, radio telescope. There are a LADAR to study the atmosphere because Arecibo was doing three fields. It was doing the, the atmospheric studies, which radar and the LADAR combined, they have a simultaneous observation. It was doing planetary science through radar, mapping asteroids, the first map of Venus were done with the Arecibo, and also radio astronomy, the traditional listening mode of radio astronomy. So most radio telescopes only do listening. Doing atmospheric science, that's not usual. <laughs> doing uh, a planetary, you need a radar for that. So that's why in uh, Arecibo was still the most powerful radar in the world. But people say, well, that's China. No, that's a radio telescope. That's his, China has the, is the biggest telescope. It's a 500 meter biggest. Telescope. So it's more, most, a little bit more sensitive in, for listening than Arecibo because it, it was larger. But in radar mode, transmit. So that's why in 1974, the famous Arecibo message was sent because it was capable of doing <laughs> ascending signals. You cannot ask for that for a telescope like the one in China fast. But uh, so when we lost Arecibo, then we lost the radar capability. And the next best radars are uh, scattered through the world. Are, they're much less uh, powerful. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge gap. It's one of the big motivations there. So why? constructing it back. We need that radar capability. Mm -hmm. I think that will be the most important scientific uh, uh, reason to rebuild Arecibo. We need that radar capability. Okay, we lost that, we, the world lost that radar capability. It's not that Arecibo or Puerto Rico, lost that. the world lost the, that radar capability. You have still the facility there, yeah. just waiting just for a new telescope. So, so is it being rebuilt? And uh, no, because that will take some time. 
if it ever happens. Mm. So scientists are pushing to, uh, to do that. And there, I don't know if you seen so far the white paper and the web page of the Arecibo, which has the all the plans. But these plans were designed by the scientific community. All the Arecibo users, all-time users, and just new users, and uh, got together through all these meetings. And in early January, wrote a paper, a white paper, describing, okay, uh, why we need a new radio telescope in Arecibo. And providing those, not only that the radar capability, but also all the things that we can do. And when I work in, in the paper, in the, in the theory of how to, uh, what we can do to uh, continue this observation related to exoplanets, but not in engineering. I have some requests of things, frequencies, range of that are will be interesting and that kind of stuff. So they, the staff of the observatory got together with also engineers and other scientists and just designed something. When I saw what they designed, I couldn't sleep that night. It was like a, a dream machine. I said, wow, sensitivity as same as the one in China, even that it's not larger. It will be a little bit larger than before, but uh, sensitivity will be the same but in a much wider range of frequencies, much wider. That's totally amazing. It will have also the sky coverage. It will have more motion just to see uh, more space, 2.5 more space. So that's more than any other radio telescope also. And, uh, and But the sensitivity, frequency range, and that uh, wider sky range just make a, a dream machine. Instead of just one dish, it will be many dishes together. So they will operate as you wish, mm -hmm. all together or different ones. So you can also, that will improve also the elimination or radio frequency interference to recognize and uh, having different modes of observation. So it's an amazing machine. So it will be an array of telescopes just close together. That's actually uh, the, 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 the name of those type of, of observatory, which there are a few because it's, it's a kind of uh, new technology. So new, new things is a, a phase array. It's a phase array uh, uh, radio telescope. So it works in, in, with uh, also receiving and transmitting. And that, has, and that has the advantage that without moving the dish, well, the plate, in this case, a plate with many dishes, without moving the plate, then uh, you can scan the sky. You can move like that. So uh, that liberates you less mechanics. Still, because you want a wider range, you will be able to move the platform. That platform will be able to move, but then once in one location, it doesn't have to move that much because it will be very easy to scan in different directions. So it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous piece of, of physics and engineering in terms of it's using new technology. It was, I saw it's, okay, this is sci-fi. So probably those that built the first Arecibo telescope in the 60s felt like that through the plans. This is a sci-fi machine, something impossible. That's the impression that I got when I saw uh, that white paper. We'll post a link to that white paper on the Physics World website on the page 
for this episode. And that white paper describes one option for Arecibo. Seth Shostak reveals some more conversations from behind the scenes. I mean, you can always rebuild something if you want to do it. The National Science Foundation, which is largely funded Arecibo, uh, says they don't want to do it. They just want to take it apart. Now, you know, not everybody agrees with that. I personally don't even agree with that. I mean, this is a unique instrument. And the only comparable one is one that was recently uh, completed in China, which is slightly bigger than the one in Puerto Rico. But it'd be a you know, real shame if, for example, American astronomers and actually Arecibo is used by people around the world, uh, you know, wasn't there. You could rebuild it. But uh, I, I had an email from the director who said that the cost of rebuilding it was one hundred and twenty million dollars. That's that's a lot of money. And, uh, you know, you can say, well, should we do that or should we spend $120 million on something else for astronomy? And, of course, that's a judgment call. There is quite a bit of interest these days in building radio telescopes that are not one giant single dish, as it's called, uh, but building arrays because arrays can do things that single dish can't, in particular, see fine detail. But, but that's, you know, all underway. The Europeans are building the square kilometer array. I don't know that the United States is... In, involved much in that anymore. But anyhow, so that'll be a very powerful instrument too. It, you know, it, essentially the area of a square kilometer, but spread out over, you know, a lot of real estate in South Africa and also Western Australia and, and to some extent the European continent. But, um, you know, there's always a need for just a big light bucket, if you will, or maybe you should call it a radio bucket like Arecibo. I mean, the Chinese didn't build that 500 meter antenna just, you know, because of its decorative value. You know, they, they realized it had a lot of scientific value. And uh, maybe you say, okay, well, we don't need more than one. And the Chinese have built it. And maybe you could argue that, but of course, and the Chinese have, uh, you know, stated that they're going to make this available to astronomers everywhere. But it, it's kind of nice to have your own instrument. There's no doubt about it. The National Science Foundation have that white paper that Abel Mendez told us about and discussions are ongoing. Abel told me that it might be April for the next round of those conversations and one suggested way of raising funds for whatever will follow is to sell off pieces of the telescope. I wondered if Abel would buy a piece. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like... Uh... I need to have one piece of a uh, of metal scrap. I don't know. I don't know how to feel. Probably for somebody else, uh, is, is that has be, that related to the observatory is something wow, marvelous. For me, it's something different. It's like something sad. It's like having an urn of somebody that died and I, that uh, it hurts <laughs> to, to 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 see that and and. I will, I will, I will be uh, proud to, to having a, a piece like that. I will be proud now of having a new observatory there. We can say that, that at the original receiver will be proud of this. That will be something that I will love to see. Thank you so much to Abel Mendez and Jill Tata for talking to me. And the interview with Seth Shostak was first aired on my other podcast, The Cosmic Shed. And thank you to Dr. Steve Bullock for allowing us to bring that interview to the Physics World Stories podcast. Next month, we'll be looking at the link between artificial intelligence and medical physics. And thank you very much for listening. 
physics world.